Thanks, everybody, for being here today for our Friday conversation with Ryan B. Um, thanks for being here, Ryan. Yeah, I appreciate it, Colin. It's, uh, and people came, so this is good. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, well, look, we, uh, we look forward to you know, hearing all about your career and especially your time at Sodexo and now Fullcast. Um, you've recently transitioned into you know, this position, CSO, at, at Fullcast. Um, but you know, before we kind of jump into all that, we'd you know, love to hear about you've lived in Utah for a while, traveled out of Utah for various you know, yeah. places around the world. What makes you love Utah so much? Yeah, do you think I'm um, wearing the spreadshirt, right? Sorry, the spreadshirt, spreadsheet. I have a spreadsheet on my mind. I'm wearing the sweatshirt um, from Paleon. Thank you. Build Utah. Yeah, no, I love, I don't, I love Utah. And I don't know that I ha- would have always said that. Um, so I've, we've made a conscious choice to, to stay here. But uh, got my MBA at Arizona State, lived in Arizona for a while, been in and out of the country quite a bit. Uh, did a lot of work in Latin America. When I, back in the day, right after I graduated with my undergrad, um, and then the last seven years was at a company out of Paris, France and had the sort of had the chance to move multiple times and didn't move to Paris. I, I don't know. I mean, what, there's a reason we all stay here. Uh, there's a reason people are moving here and, uh, the quality of life, the outdoors. I got back into skiing, uh, when I got the icon pass. So you can blame, you can blame the past, right? Yeah. Um, people always tell me like, oh, the icon pass ruined it. Everyone goes now. Eh, maybe. But it's like hard because if you don't get the icon pass and your friends go ski at a resort, you don't have a pass to. Exactly. It's like a, you have to have it even though you don't want it because the traffic is insane. Yeah. 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 But it changed my life, this idea. Because when you, when you didn't have a pass, you'd have to, you know, like it was a full day. Get all the kids' boots buckled, you know, get everything, pack the lunch. And you're like, we're not, we are not taking a break. I paid $450 a ticket for this. <laughs> you are skiing all day. And now you get the pass and you're like, eh, I'll go for two hours, hit six runs. Get 12 inches of powder and then go back to work. Yeah, yeah. It like changed my life. Well, not to mention, how many kids do you have again? Five. Five? Yeah. So five times an average burger price of $47 and you're looking at <laughs> yeah. an expensive day on the mountain. <laughs> exactly. So, but I love, I love what's happened here to the business scene, of course, the entrepreneurial scene. Uh, you know, if you sort of look at the history and you go back to uh, Novell and then you have Center 7 and you have some of that IPO money starting to come in, some of that M&A money starting to come in, made may- maybe a handful of millionaires. And then I was at Fusion IO, and Fusion uh, ended up IPOing, and that created another handful of millionaires, and some of that money started to spread around. And then you have this wave, obviously, that's happened over the last 10 years. And that's changed, that, I mean, that's changed everything. Because right. the money's staying here. You now have the universities totally on board. So they're feeding in the talent. You have what Silicon Valley had in 1990, 19, early 80s, with the tech, with the money, and with the talent. Mm-hmm. And, and tell us, I mean, you've seen growth here, obviously, within your own career. But you've seen what you just described happen. Where do you see Utah and specifically, you know, tech five, ten years from now in Utah? Yeah, so fascinating to think about. Um, you do have competing tech hubs that are coming up all around the country, and, and this happened because of COVID, right? So we all went distributed, so you didn't need everyone in the same place. And now you have another another major disruptor, which is AI, and AI arguably can can do things that talent that used to be required to have talent in a room for. And so you will get very distributed, and it makes it does make you wonder, like, what will be left here of a tech scene, or what will the future be? I think you have, you will always have emotion behind business, and so what I love about Utah is there's a lot of emotion here. Yeah. People get into this, they get into the networking, they want to talk to each other, and you get this this set of entrepreneurs that thrive because they're all work. They, it seems like we're all working together. Yes, we compete. But like we want, we want the other people to succeed. Uh, yeah. If that can carry, we hold a place. If we sort of get rid of that and it becomes really myopic, uh, you do, you you can't, you could see a future where it's not as centralized, um, and others and other areas do compete. But I do think you'll have a texting here that remains. I think you'll have that personal interpersonal connection. Uh, you certainly have talent mm-hmm. here. And uh, and the companies that will thrive are the ones that, that sort of bring those pieces together. Yeah. It's interesting. A lot of people talk about Utah and the growth that's happened here, but they're concerned about the infrastructure to be able to handle 
I mean, at some point you can't keep building houses up the side of the mountain. Um, and at Silicon Soaps, it's funny because we get on calls with companies that are like, we want to move to Utah, and we're like, we want you here, but we don't want you here. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, but... So tell them the tell them the snow sucks. Yeah, worst worst snow on <laughs> Do earth. Do not ski here. It's don't terrible. listen to the license plate. The snow <laughs> is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've recently transitioned into CSO Fullcast, and I think you know, kind of before we dive into you know that story, I'd love to hear about what it's like to be basically head of sales for a twenty three billion dollar company. Yeah. At Sodexo. Yeah, Sodexo. Who's heard of Sodexo? Two, three, four. See, I knew it. Three people. Yeah, I, I used to tell you know you have that that cliche like how would you explain your company to your mom? I'm like, mom, it's the 17th largest company in the world that nobody's ever heard of, including you. Um, and the fact is, it interacted with a hundred million consumers every day. So you're probably one of those consumers that interacted with Sodexo and never knew it. But um, Sodexo is the 17th largest company in the world, 500,000 employees, headquartered in Paris, France, family-run business, now now on the French stock exchange, or has been for a long time, operating in 50 countries. Um, loved it. Loved every minute of it. I started North America running SaaS uh, for an engagement play. We had an engagement software for sort, of, for sort of HR. I'd been at OC Tanner, so I knew employee engagement. And, uh, and, and ran that and must have done something right because then they asked me to be head of revenue globally. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a huge job. I mean, that was a major jump for me to, to go to teams now of thousands. We stood up revenue operations. We hadn't had RevOps. So we put RevOps in across the globe. We had four regions, you know, your typical four regions, EMEA, uh, North America, APAC. And, and I just love to know, I mean, you were traveling outside yeah. of Utah for this. And, and Sodexo, from my understanding, doesn't have a huge office here you know, for North America. Talk us, talk us through those travels. How often were you gone? Where were you going? What type of problems were you addressing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was traveling it, a lot, 50% of the time, to different countries, different regions. But you got to imagine the minute. So, so actually, I got promoted into the role right as COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So my first year and a half, I didn't travel. True. <laughs> Everything yeah. was by phone. Interesting. In fact, you'll appreciate this. Uh, you know, thousands of sellers worldwide, and nobody knows how to run a Zoom call. No one's ever sold virtually. Sodexo is very face-to-face because we're selling food services, which means I'm walking into a building, and I'm showing you, here's where the cart would go. Here's where the coffee will go. Here's where you're, you're, you know, you'll serve your free lunches to your employees. You name it. Hospitals. Here's how we run safety. And we did full-on in-house demonstrations, take that and apply that virtually. That's a little rough. And so um, to say I traveled, yes, I started traveling eventually, but those first years, I ended up, I ended up creating what we call the virtual boot camp, virtual selling boot camp, <laughs> and ran thousands of people through like 23 courses on everything from, okay, when, you sit, when, you're on the, when you're on Zoom, don't have the light behind you, have the light in front of you. Otherwise, <laughs> you look like a shadow. <laughs> right? I just don't think about it. You didn't think no one no one yeah. thought of this stuff. So I have basic boot camp on how to show up on a camera, how to sell, how to ask questions, how to interact with people, how to remember names, how to share your screen. Uh, that was wild because we're talking to in some cases thirty year sales veterans who were selling ten, twenty, thirty million dollar contracts. In some cases, truly a hundred, two hundred million dollar contracts a year, uh, who've never been on a Zoom. Which was wild. So anyway, I did start traveling after that in Paris quite a bit. And Sodexo specifically, because probably all of us in this room almost on a daily, several times a week basis, are interacting with that company somehow and somewhere. Talk us through, like, on a day-to-day, like, where is Sodexo? What, what, what are they doing specifically? How are we interacting with it without even knowing? Yeah. Uh, any hospital environment where there's safety, where someone's, someone's cleaning the building, Someone's taking care of uh, sort of the back behind the scenes. Uh, well, actually, so Qualtrics and a, a few uh, people still up at the, um, not the Delta Center, the old one, Salt Palace mm-hmm. Convention Center. Sorry, I couldn't remember that. But the Salt Palace Convention Center, if you ever go to an event there, all the food, all the facilities, all the people cleaning, serving the food, that's all Sodexo. Uh, Weber State, if you ever got a churro at Weber State, you ate, you know, that was Sodexo's food. Airports. You're walking through the airport. Someone's cleaning. That's at XO. So it's everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. And then you have a whole set of employee engagement services, um, stadiums. So 
we had the first female chef ever at a Super Bowl. And uh, she get this was this was kind of a big deal. Wall Street Journal, a bunch of others picked it up, but uh, cooked amazing Cuban American food, <laughs> so good, and and uh, hit a home run. And then something like they recycled three hundred three. I don't remember exactly. I'm going to quote this wrong, but just thousands of pounds of aluminum they recycled and and and, and then recycled all the food. So it turns out food waste is a huge deal. Huge deal. So yeah. people interact with it every day. We had. We stood up all RevOps. We had a huge sales team, uh, and I had a $2.5 billion growth number. It was the same number that the previous person had, had you know, taken on, and no one had hit it. And so we got a really just amazing team together, and we hit it. And then it went to 2.8, and we hit it again, and then now it's moved up. And the yeah. stock went up. Everything changed. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a perfect tra- transition. Talk us through some of the specific numbers of like your team and teams that you were overseeing. I mean, we're talking SDRs, account executives, all globally. What does that team look like? Yeah. Well, Sodexo does so many things right. When I walked, you know, I came in. There's people that were really seasoned sellers that knew the environment, they knew how to interact, they knew how to get a deal done. Um, but what was lacking is you're moving into a future where people needed to to interact virtually. COVID really, uh, COVID uh, accentuated that. But you had teams that we needed new sellers in a way that we needed new talent that that understood the new ways of selling. Mm -hmm. Um, People that could sort of pick up on the future uh, ways of interacting. So like I said, I I had a whole, there's a whole team that just never had been on a, a virtual call. We knew that was coming. We needed to address pipeline because pipeline was almost non-existent, so we built an entire go-to-market engine with pipeline, um, and then we we had to fix the sales productivity. So all of this kind of came about. Uh, I've got a sort of a methodology that has worked for me, and I'll, maybe I'll just share it real quick if that's all right. Yeah, perfect. Go for it. So I had been in my I was in my seventy-fifth QBR, and QBRs are quarterly business reviews where you're reviewing all your reps and what's happened. They come in, and it's basically three things: what did I do last quarter? what is my forecast for this quarter and what do I need to hit it? And I tell him, you're a business owner. And I was in just career wise, it was about my 75th and I started taking notes and I was like, wait, where are all my notes from the past? And I pulled them up and I had them in spreadsheets and I had them in, in, um, on some notepads. And I started circling all the things that all the reasons that were valid, valid reasons why someone had missed a number. Okay, so think about that. What is a valid reason someone's missed a number? Someone stood up in front of you, or you've been a rep, and you've stood up and said, oh, I missed my number last quarter, but here's why. Right, right. What do you think some of the reasons are? I didn't have the pipeline to be able to do pipeline, it. Pipeline, price, yeah. competitor, uh-huh. timing. So it turns out there are about 45 variables why you miss a number. And I thought, well, how do you solve 45? And I started just going through all of them, and I had a spreadsheet, and I found – there were three extreme commonalities, uh, and there were three very valid reasons. Some reasons weren't valid. For example, price I ruled out. Price is not a reason why you lose a deal mm-hmm. because price is a function of perceived value. You can sure. control perception of value in three ways you, 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 the, because they're, they're evaluating three things. The, the perception of the outcome, what will it do, the perception of you as a salesperson, the perception of the company. So, for example, there's a reason. Here's my iPhone. How much does this cost if it turns on? Six hundred dollars. Six hundred to twelve hundred dollars. Yeah. Okay. If it turns off, and if it never turns on, how much is it worth? Nothing. Three bucks. Send it. You know, a toy for your kids. Look at the disparity, because it actually had an outcome. You'll pay twelve hundred because it works. You'll pay three dollars if it doesn't. That's price. That's price. And so, you, so think about that for a minute. So I ruled out price, but there were three things, and I call these the three Ps. The first commonality of why people miss a number um, is they didn't have enough pipeline. They're really good sales reps. We had all the motion. They really didn't have enough pipeline. The second reason you missed is because the sales rep wasn't actually that good. Mm-hmm. And I don't always blame the rep, but something was missing in enablement. They actually weren't as good as we had hoped. Um, and the third reason we missed is because the product wasn't there. So I have really good reps. They're really good at what they do. Product really doesn't meet the market demand uh, and doesn't, doesn't fit a pain. I call those the three Ps. And I said, well, wait a minute. If those are the reasons we miss, what if we could flip that and say those are the reasons we could win? And so pipeline, productivity, and product. And, and what I figured out is that's basically an equilibrium. 
I need all three to work together. And if I inflate one, it puts pressures on, pressure on the other two. Right. So if I have a really good product, and you see this all the time with product-led strategy, build a really good product, and immediately it's going to put pressure on, are my sales te- is my sales team good, and do I have enough pipeline? I can reverse that. I can say, if I got a lot of pipeline, it's going to put pressure on, the product better be good, and I better have good sellers. And so those three are in equilibrium. So to answer your question, um, when we stood up Sodexo, uh, when we stood up all of RevOps at Sodexo, I I, I basically had that framework in my mind. I said, all right, we're going to start with one thing. We're going to inflate pipeline and see what happens. So I built, I put all of the motion into pipeline. We built these centers of demand gen around the globe. We had people cranking on all new campaigns and and a bunch of SDRs. They had never done this before. Mm -hmm. It worked. So pipeline then inflated the, the offers team, the products team, to say, ooh, we better get up to speed because we're getting a lot of feedback now that the product isn't right. where people want it. And then it inflated, uh, and then it put pressure on the productivity of, oh, crap, we better build sales enablement because we're getting a ton of pipeline. i got to get better at what I do. Uh, and that, that equilibrium solved the problem better than anything I'd tried. And, and in a sense, it's, just, it's a framework as a leader that I keep in my mind constantly, do I have a, a pipeline problem, do I have a sales productivity problem, or do I have a product issue? Yeah. And between those three, then I make a decision, which am I going to put pressure on, and it will inflate. If it, if it builds, it will put pressure on the other two. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was super interesting. Thanks for letting me go off on that. I don't know if that was helpful. <laughs> that was great. Super valuable. Um, we, we could spend hours talking about your experience at Sedex, so I think that there's, there's just so much information and knowledge that you've gained for your, how many years were you there? You were there seven, oh, just under seven. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, switching gears a little bit, you know, transition to full cast. Um, tell us that story. Was there a relationship with Ryan Westwood that you kind of led to that? The um, Ryan Westwood. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan's a, Ryan's an icon, isn't he? Um, I've never met a founder who's as down to earth, who understands the value of humanity who understands that business is a result of talent, uh, emotion, having the right funding, mm-hmm. bringing that together, and then having just this 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 underlying principle of people first. Um, I d- I knew Ryan. I watched him grow Simplus. Uh, when when I was I've been at I've been at a Salesforce user since the very beginning. When I was at Landesk, which is now Ivanti, mm-hmm. I think we were honestly there. 50th customer, it feels like. I mean, I went to the very first Dreamforce. Well, the first was, I think, was in Mark's basement. <laughs> so, Benioff's basement. The second one had a couple thousand people. We, I went to that one early, early on. And, and I watched that whole ecosystem grow up. I watched the blue elves of the world grow up. And, and I thought, okay, time to start a service shop. And so, Ryan Westwood, he gets into that. And they get into CPQ. And I'm watching him and Lance and others. And, um, and super successful. And so, we interacted. Well, fast forward to I, I've left Sodexo. Uh, I had some time in between, which was really it was really healthy. And I was like, "Where do I want?" You know, where I had a, a couple people I was talking to, and I'm in the basement of I don't remember what this, but there, anyway, there's a networking hall down in the basement of Dreamforce, and if you remember that in the Moscone West. So I'm down in there, and I've just finished a phone call, and I'm with I'm sort of there with another company that I was doing some fractional work with mm-hmm. uh, that was really fun. And I turn around, and I hang up my phone, and someone else is on his phone, and he hangs up his phone at the exact same time. We turn, and it's Ryan Westwood. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, Ryan Westwood. He's Ryan Bott. And we had just seen each other at the, at the Silicon Slopes Hall of Fame. Like, well, not just, but you know, several months before, uh-huh. where he did the keynote. Yeah. Um, and we look at each other, and we just start jamming. And like, it was one of these most emotional connections, unlike I've ever had. Uh, to the point, now I will admit this, one point like we were swapping stories and I'm tearing up and we could feel this connection. And then several months of just talking and thinking about it and, uh, and I'm looking at other options and I'm like, this is it. This is it. Well, and, and maybe, I don't know how much you want to share here, but obviously your position at Sodexo was very high stress, I yeah. imagine. Very high yeah. stress. Did, this, did, the, did that moment between you two, did that stir an emotion in you that was like, okay, I could be on to something as far as the next move. Like, were you already thinking about a next move there? Or did that- well, so my boss had retired. So what happens at Sodex is my boss, Belgian guy, su- super amazing, guy named Bruno, speaks, seven, or speaks six languages, lived in Philadelphia. And he and I and one other were kind of the only people in North America, a very mm-hmm. French company. 
And I knew the minute he would announce his retirement, it was going to set off a chain. So many people wanted his job. The CEO, being very French, wanted more French people in the circle. And, uh, and Belgian and French don't necessarily get along, by the way. <laughs> and so he ends up leaving, and that just started. And so they call me, hey, you need to move to Paris. Mm-hmm. We need you here. I've got someone that will take your role, if not. And, and so someone else had gotten his role. Anyway, it was it was time, and I thought, well, do I stay? Because there's plenty of things I could have done, that I could have done there. And I thought, oh, do I stay? Right. And I and I said, no, what? Let's just let's part ways. And it was amazing. You can see on LinkedIn from the CEO on down, a lot of heartfelt exchanges. That's good. When I announced my, but so I leave, and I'm realizing, I've got, I want to find something that was high growth, but with good people, because mm-hmm. I absolutely loved my boss, and I thought I need to find a boss like Bruno, um, and or somebody like him. And, and Ryan Westwood is that person. And, and so I just, as I, look, as I looked around, it came down to people. Because you get to a point in your career where, like, you can do the job. Yeah. You know, a lot of you. I mean, you, you get to that point where you're like, I'm pretty good. Now, I, I can do it. Throw anything at me. I've seen it all. I just want to work with good people. Good people, yeah. Because that makes all the difference. Right, right. And so transition happens. You guys are you're here now, full cast. Talk us through what you're doing day-to-day at Fullcast, and for those of us who may not know a whole lot <laughs> yeah. about what Fullcast is up to. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. Ryan Westwood, th- this is way more stress here than it was. <laughs> because Sodexo... Well, you're I, going from $23 billion <laughs> down to, you know... <laughs> yeah, a couple million, right? Um, so Fullcast has existed for a while. It was started by s- some great founders named Armesh and Bala. Bala's at Salesforce.com, and he's got literally thousands of leaders around the world, and he has to turn in his, their go-to-market plans. So it turns out Benioff every year would say, I need everyone's plan in this template turned in, and then someone had to aggregate all the plans. At Sodexo, I had 60 of these. So we re- roughly had 15 verticals across four regions, and everyone has to turn in a plan. We'd build a three-year plan every year. Mm-hmm. So Ball is there, and he's like, this is madness. I've got to, I've got to literally sum up thousands of plans and oh by the way version control and oh by the way leadership changes in the middle of it so and so is not here anymore and oh by the way the, the size of your team just changed everything is so fluid it's so real time there was no way to roll that up to mark in a, in a reasonable fashion so he 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 in the back behind the scenes goes and gets a couple, a couple developers and they build their own platform just to run planning at salesforce and that's the beginning of fullcast because all the customers started asking, well, can I borrow this? Can I have it? Can right. you, so you've got – how do I get access to that? And it became this thing, and, and the rest is – I mean, Fullcast started taking off because people needed a way to take go-to-market seriously. The fact is spreadsheets are done. We have a system for everything else in the business except for growth. The number one – I would argue the number one most important thing in the company, the thing that actually gets people fired or hired – People's livelihood is on the lines because of growth, and we're responsible for that, and we're running on a spreadsheet. It's not acceptable. And, and, and I'll tell you my own story. I'm at Sodexo, and it, I, I'm sitting there. I'm trying to roll up everyone's plans. I'm like, this is madness. I wonder if I could consolidate it into one. So I get, on, I get online. I'm looking. I find a bunch of online spreadsheets, and they're okay. They house it. They let me collaborate. But the, the, rules, of, the rules engines are really light. I'm mm-hmm. like, this is not complex enough. And so I, I get on Fiverr and I, and I'm, and I just Google uh, on Fiverr, I search and I say, get, find me a Wharton MBA who builds go-to-market plans. And I find this guy, I call him Dr. Smart and Dr. Smart and I try and build a plan for two months. And in two months, he's like, I'm out, I'm done. I can't do it. Yeah. And that's when I realized, oh my goodness, you've got it at, at a certain level. Your complexity is high enough. You've got to figure out. There's got to be something. And so the best part about what Fullcast is doing is they're building a, a go-to-market cloud. Mm-hmm. So Ryan comes in. He sees this. He looks at 50 opportunities, and he says, I want to get something that already has a base that works, and it's really and, – and the, and the product is just killer. And that's what he found in Fullcast. Um, so the whole go-to-market cycle is in there. The planning – by the way, planning should never be once a year. If you can get out of the pain – because it's just a painful cycle. The reason it's once a year is people hate doing it. Yeah, yeah. So if you can actually say, look, this is easy. I, I, here's a place to collaborate. There's AI behind it. And AI can tell you, make some pretty solid recommendations on how to build territories. You can keep it balanced. Um, then it works. And so when I saw that, I was like, well, this is what I needed at Sodexo. 
this is going to be so fun to to just build a killer sales team mm-hmm. and and run it. And then Ryan since made a couple more acquisitions. He's got more going. He's got some things in the works right now to build out this true go-to-market cloud. Um, am I answering your question? But I don't even know where I am right now. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I, I think I think what would be interesting to talk about is like you just brought up AI. Talk about the future of sales. How is AI affecting that? I mean, you're obviously boots on the ground right now building that and being a part of that. But what are you seeing the future of sales looking like? What's happening now? What should be happening? What should organizations be considering? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, it's such a... Uh, the future of sales is, is uh, it should be on all our minds, right? Like, what's happening? Should I let reps go? Should I keep them? Should I, you know, is a, what, how much can AI actually do? I think your first role that will be impacted are your SDRs. And I can say this because... Um, I have a little bit of a claim, right? I, I think I do anyway. And I'm being, uh, this sounds pompous, I'm sorry, but to, to SDR land, like I was in early, early, right? Aaron Ross, Jason Lemkin stuff, Aaron's at Salesforce, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm watching everything he's doing, and I'm kind of pinging him. We'd run into each other at Dreamforce, and like, okay, how do you do this? Mm-hmm. Um, he probably doesn't even remember me, but we did. And uh, and so I got in early on how to build the SDR movement and and separate the, the real prospecting from the closing. Um, that motion is going to shift to what I call the SDO. It's going to be a sales development operator, and, and 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 to prove it, we've actually hired we've hired for it. So we found our first person as an SDO. As an SDO, that's cool. And uh, his name's Joe. I knew I had the right guy when I'm in the middle of the interview process. I'm like, Joe, how many how many meetings did you set today? So I said eight. How did you set eight meetings in a day? And he's like, "Well, I'm running a dual dialer. I've got um, I'm multi-threading into 16 companies. Um, I've got uh, something like 21 AI prompts running in the background with Apollo and Clay, and he's just going on and on." I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa stop! Like, you're doing this as one person?" He said, "Yeah, it's easy." I said, <laughs> "Done. How do we how do we Deal. get you?" And the issue is, you're going to be able to have someone be a sales development operator to use AI. Uh, and all the prompts, and that technology is only going to get stronger like Clay and Apollo and others and Zoom Info, even HubSpot's starting to get there, where it, I, I don't need that SDR motion uh, in the sense that, of what it was before. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I can, I'm able to multi-thread much faster. And in that case, it is, it is central command. Right. It is someone literally with, it, with two screens, <laughs> right, telling not NASA when to launch. And, and that's, that, that, that's going to replace the SDR. I'm like I'm certain of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm starting to call it the SDO. SDO, that's interesting. Do you imagine that you know take a company that tech company that's got a team of 200 SDRs? Or maybe that's a lot. You know, 100 SDRs. What does that scale look like after? I mean, a, is the average cost you know for a business to be hiring SDRs going to be significantly impacted because these SDRs are using 15 AI tools that's helping them produce the equivalent of 10 SDRs? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know the ratios yet, but what I'm seeing so far is about a 30% reduction. But that doesn't mean reduction in force. Okay, it's just reduction in the the skills, like the the actual uh, output, mm-hmm. uh, or the reduction in the focus is probably a better way to say it. So I'm sure. reducing their focus on what used to be. I mean, we all, we know the days. It was make make whatever 700 calls. Uh, well, let's be honest, a couple hundred calls a day. A day. Right on some dialer. Six and, appointments. Yes, set six point. There were ver- various versions of dialers. Connect and sell had a dialer. Like we're going to connect you and you're going to talk. You know. Then you have other dialers. Um, and, and so that was the motion. Just go as fast as you can, doing all of these tactical skills, and it added up to some sort of output. Well, I don't need to necessarily. If I'm going to streamline that, uh, what it means is I can move SDRs a couple places. If I get them good, they're SDOs. If not, then I move them. I'd love to move someone to AE roles, and I do believe the AE role exists because people will buy. Still, we we will not lose for at least for ten years. This is my estimation. We won't lose the personal connection. Right. You, we will very shortly. Like we will be able. Two things will happen. Sorry, I'm going on multiple threads here. Oh, you're but fine. What'll happen? Super recent. Super super future. Um, meaning like within the next nine months, you'll land on a website. The website will change because it knows you. Okay, that'll happen. So you will literally land, and it'll say Ryan. It'll it'll change the experience for Ryan Bot because of your digital profile. Because of some digital profile, no, yeah. right? It's track like it's like. Don't worry, we're already all tracked anyway, right? Like the FBI is watching through these cameras. So listening. Yeah, I mean everybody. <laughs> so it's there, and like we're, there's no way around it. So you're, the the website and the web experience will change based on you landing there. Mm-hmm. It'll be different for you than it will for me. That'll happen. 
Um, the second thing that will happen is we'll be, we'll be going to AI and we'll be asking, what tool do I buy? And it will make recommendations. But then it'll still spit out, well, you know, here's a, here's a list. And, and what will happen is we'll take that list. It'll probably be the short list. And we'll still want to interact with humans. Why? Because we buy off of emotion. Right. We react off of emotion. Everything is emotional. Even, I mean, look, and the reason I said is even look at the stock market. They've tried, all the analysts have tried to take emotion out of the stock market. It just won't ever leave. They've gotten as close as they can, but it won't leave. And so selling will be the same. It won't leave. And so you'll need sellers who can deeply, personally connect with people and help them see an outcome. And I would love to think SDRs transition into that. So uh, that's that's yeah. my goal. What, what would you say are the biggest threats, though? I mean, I, not to bring up that conversation, there's so many threats. Threats we know. to humanity? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I was just that was just yesterday morning looking at the the Sorna videos of the AI produced, gener- you know, AI generated images and videos. And it's like, how, how is that going to impact a seller's ability to, uh, a buyer's ability to recognize, is this a person? Is this not a person that I'm buying from? Yeah. Well, that'll certainly, that, that's a challenge for sure. In, uh, and not in just SDR land, in all areas of the business, sure. in all areas of our life, we're going to get to a point where we don't know exactly what we're looking at. I mean, it's already here. Am I looking at something that's real or is this fabricated? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, governments say they're going to put regulations around this, but it is going to change the way we sort of process as humans. Like, what am I looking at? For good and bad, what that will do for many people is it will create a distrust. I don't mean to, like, talk hunger games here, right? So there's a camp of people who don't trust the system and there's people that are in the system. But, right. but there will be a people – there will be a large subset of buyers who are like, I'm not there yet. I don't trust the system. In fact, I ran all the AI inputs and said it, it told me to buy this, and yet I don't feel good about it. So this is where the interpersonal communication or the interpersonal um, connection will still matter. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, we, all, we absolutely will all of us get to the point where we've got to make sense at what we're looking at um, and try and manage like what's reality. But the more we connect with – the more humans sort of band together – the better off the future is going to be. Yeah, yeah, love that. Um, I used to be an SDR at a tech company, you know, and was making the calls daily. Talk about just real quickly for you know anybody here, um, how important is that role, and what advice do you have for anybody, regardless if it's an SDR account executive, at just grinding and pushing through that grind and learning those skills. What advice do you have there? Did you say SDR? Because I think it's called an SDO now. SD, SDO, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about what I was saying. Is your my first advice would be learn all of those tricks and tips. Learn AI. Learn to learn what a command center would be, and run it. Right. Be the person at the company who's just jamming on the tech and figuring out how to how to multi-thread. Uh, across your prospect base, right? Set a, set a list of 250 target accounts. These are our target accounts in the ICP we want to hit, and I'm going to use all of the tools to get there. Um, and then figure out how to be hyper-personalized when it matters. Mm-hmm. So when I talk to you or when I connect to you or when I take a break from all of the tools and I send you a personalized note, Colin, it's heartfelt. Right. That's going to break through the noise. Um, so we need to be doing both, but hyper-personalization not in the sense of, so that sounds like a tech word. Put emotion, put actual emotion behind it. Do I care about you as an individual? Why would I actually want to talk to you? But more importantly, why would you want to talk to me? Right, right. Let's figure out how to break through that and let AI do its thing, and then I still still make a personal connection. That's what I recommend for SDRs. Uh, probably the most important thing right now. Awesome. Um, well, before we jump into questions, because I know a lot of people have questions to ask you, um, a little bit of a different note here, but wanted to ask you, as you know, head of global sales for Sodexo, and, and even in your position now at, at Fullcast, talk about that work-life balance. I think everyone loves to hear, especially in sales, because sales is a grind, and, and, and sales management can be a you know, heavy burden at, at points. Talk yeah. about that relationship with your family and Whew. how you manage that. Who's figured out work-life balance here? What? No hands went up. <laughs> It is a daily struggle, isn't it? Well, it, I know, like, your son is – tell that story. He's one of the fastest runners in Utah right now. Yeah, in fact, I think he's racing here. He's racing at the Mountain West Conference Championship. So, uh, yeah, side note, my, my son, uh, he won the 400 and the 4x4 in state. 
he left, was out of country, went on a mission, and at the end, he's like, I think I want to run and then walk on to, to somewhere. Uh, and his previous coaches in high school were like, okay, you can do this, and got him on at Utah State. So he's a walk-on, and he just starts smoking everybody, and um, in the 800 meter in particular. So he's, he's now the sixth fastest freshman in the country as a walk-on, <laughs> running – well, and, and you have to convert indoor to outdoor, so it's all indoor right now. He's right. at 148 on the 100 meter, which is which is high. It converts to a 147. That's Olympic qualifying's at 144, so he's fast. And uh, and now he's he's he, so we had a meet a couple weekends ago with uh, all the pack. So the Big 12, we had the Pac 12. I mean, he beats everybody. It was it was awesome. Um, so he's running today. He that was one of the reasons why I'm like I don't want to move to Paris right now because mm-hmm. I really wanted to see where he could go. But work life balance. Uh, there are better people than I to describe this, but I will I will say a couple things. You got to pick what matters, and you got to stick with that. So if bedtime matters for a child, right, make that make that work. If connecting with a partner or spouse is is if that's important to you and to him or her, make that, make that the priority. But pick five. Pick five things that you just, they're non-negotiable. Because what happens is w- the more we mature in our business acumen and the better we get, in the, and, and I don't know if I say higher, but we just get to a point where we're good, we know. And, and I, again, I encourage all of you to get to that point where you feel like, okay, I'm good at what I do. That's an important check, a box to check. Um, and you should get there. It's not pompous to say that, but like you're good at what you do. Yeah. That's a, that's a level of self confidence. By the way, we operate the worst. The worst place you can operate is out of fear. We know this. Psychological safety is when you operate your best. That's proven a hundred ways to Sunday. So think about when you feel psychologically safe, you'll do your best. When you get to that point, then it becomes easier to say these are my non-negotiables. I'm. These are five things that matter to me. Make it reasonable. Like, I don't tell Ryan Westwood I have to ski every day between 12 and 2. Like, that's not going to work, right? Um, skiing's important to me. So what have I done? I've figured out how to make it work on a Saturday. My kids are important, so I've, I've figured out how to take them with me. We make trade-offs. Mm-hmm. But you have to make trade-offs based on, on what you care most about. And I just say start with five. There are five things. If you think about your life right now, there are five things that matter. Um, I'll say one last thing about this. You want to run, if you're a leader in here or anybody listening, you want to run a really good session. First off, read the five dysfunctions of a team. I think her name's Pam or Amy, the CEO. I don't remember. I think it was Pam. She takes them off site, puts their electronics down. Like, what do you mean? We have all this work to do. We're not getting work done. And what happens is she says, we're going to get to know each other because if we don't operate as a team, it does not matter how good your skill set is. It just doesn't. All great teams aren't built off of individuals. Individuals succeed, but teams win. Right. Individuals succeed, but teams win. I'm going around, aren't I, Colin? Hold on. Um, but my point is you end up – a really good exercise would be take your team and, and have them in a heartfelt way, phones down, electronics down, say, what are the five most important things in my life? Have them write it on a big sheet of paper, post it on a wall, and present it to the team. And, and bring Kleenexes because people are going to cry. And it is one of the ho- most heartfelt things you'll ever go through as a team. But you build and you bond – um, and, and that's when you know, okay, these, and by the way, just forcing yourself to write down those priorities is, is huge. So that's where I was going with it is know your priorities, write them down enough that you would present them to your, your peers and your teammates and let people know this is what matters. Kind of your why, your why. Yeah, behind. I think it's your why, but it's also, yeah, it's a big part of your why, but it's also a way to just to stay grounded. Mm-hmm. Like here's what matters. And people, I've seen everything. My dog matters. My grandmother just died, right? Uh, I, I don't want to get cancer. I mean, like the, the, the list is amazing what people come up with. Mm-hmm. And our job is not to challenge that ever. This is what's most important to them. I'm not, I'm not what, well, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> That's yeah, never yeah. going to work. Like, state your five things. Let the people around you share their five things and embrace the whole thing. Oh, thank you. Um, That's good advice. Good advice. Well, I don't know. But so. it it is. It it's is. what I believe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, let's open up to questions. When it comes to mentorship, advice, guidance that you've received, what would you say is the most impactful bit of advice or guidance that, that you have received in your life? Yeah. Thank you, Pete. 
Uh, from a practical standpoint, it was a boss named John Ray. And uh, John Ray and I worked together at Infopia. Then he worked at Experticity. Great, great guy. And from a sort of CRO level, he said, forecast. Be able to forecast your business. And I, and I have learned from a manager, sort of CRO, any level of revenue leadership, whether it's go-to-market, demand gen, uh, and or sales and closing the business, you got to know your forecast. Be able to predict what's going to happen because everyone, everyone's taking cues off of that. What, what I don't think I realized early in my career is engineering's developing based on that forecast. Hiring, talent is hiring based on that forecast. We're not. The CFO is making predictions about where the stock's going to go on that forecast. If you can get really good, and what I mean by good is you're plus or minus 3%. You're not over and you're not under by more than 3%. Because, by the way, if you totally blow your number out, it also looks equally sketchy. Like, I predicted we did, you know, 100 million this year, and we did, we did 250. Like, well, how did you not know that? We could have planned a lot better had we known that, right? So you don't want, you want to be plus or minus 3% is exceptional. Plus or minus 5% is good. Like, really good. Once you're past 10, you're in trouble. So you need to be with, at least within 10%. Uh, practically, that's probably the best advice I've gotten, and I've tried to take that really seriously. Um, I would say from a, from a life standpoint, it took me a while, and I'm just being vulnerable here for a minute, it took me a while to really connect and understand the value of people. I got into this thing just feeling like, okay, we're all going to make it work and just run as fast as you can. People run a whole, whole heck of a lot faster <laughs> if you've connected with them. People will, will run through walls if you've connected with them for you. And... And so my best advice around there has been, Ryan, slow down. Get to know these people. Understand what makes them tick. Uh, be curious. Be curious, not assumptive. So thanks, Pete. Yeah. So I'm interested in the idea of, as a leader, both a frontline manager and a higher-level leader like you've been at Sodexo, how do you view the time it takes to create cultural change? at like a frontline level and an organizational level? And, and what's your patience and tolerance to allow change to happen? <laughs> yeah, my patience and tolerance is probably, it's, too, it's been too short, right, as, as I think about my own tenure. Uh, I, I, I tend to just want to think, have things move very fast. And like, what do you mean? We trained you once. So how do you, what do you mean you don't get it? Like there was a slide. I sent out a slide. It was in Slack. I sent it six months ago. What do you mean? So I've learned to slow down. I think HR is your best ally in that sense because HR change management and there's some really good change people out there. Uh, LinkedIn has been one of the best places for content on change management. Just, just find some good change management behavioral practices and there'll be playbooks on how to run it for a team as small as six up to 6,000. Um, Sodexo, obviously, we took it very seriously because we're changing all the orgs, and we're changing compensation and people's livelihood. I mean, that was massive. You'd, you'd plan for months, and then you'd roll it out for months, and then you'd, you'd wait for results for months. So, I mean, it was a year-long process, change management. I think the problem you have at big, complex companies like that, by the way, is by the time the change management hits and it's actually starting to work, someone wants to change it again. <laughs> and that's always, to me, the conundrum has been when do you hold and when do you fold? Like, when do you say... This is starting to work. Let's keep it. Let's see it out. I think it is the thinnest. If I look at business as a whole, the, the thinnest ra razor, uh, sort of razor's edge in business is when to hold and when to fold. When, do, when is it actually working and do I keep it going and when do I fold it, right? In other words, when do I stay the course or when do I pivot? And change management is at the heart of that question because you end up thinking, Ah, is it working? And you, you lay there uh, like late, late at night. Is it working? I don't know. You start to look at all your metrics. I don't know. Are they getting it? Maybe, maybe we chose the wrong course. Um, do we pivot? Yes or no? But I guess to answer your question in a, in a few simple bullets would be really get the people in the room, look them in the eyes, ask them. Don't start by telling, just ask them, hey, we need to make a few changes. Here, 
Here's some framework. Where do, you, where do you see the state of the business? What do you think? Ask them in their one-on-ones. No one's short of ideas, but you've got to sort of steer that. Once you know that they, once they've felt like they're part of it, and this, this is a law of psychology. If I'm invested in something, I'm okay with the result. When, when you've not consulted, when I've not consulted you at all, you're not invested. You're like, it's not what I would have done, right? Arms fold in the back of the room. Yep, sounds good. Walk out, hit the water cooler. Like, that's never going to work. I mean, we know that environment. We all live it. So I don't know. Am, am I answering the question? I hope. <laughs> it's, that's very deep, though. Thank you. Which business books or books about life should everybody read? Yeah. Whew. Uh, whew, yeah, you're going back here. I loved value forward selling, which was like basic, basic in the day. I mean, this is 15 years ago. And I'm like, that, oh, this is how you sell value. If, if, if we know how to hold value, we can hold price. It, it is a race to the bottom if you can't sell value, period. It's just what it is. Again, there's a reason I pay 1200 if it turns on. There's a reason I pay three if it doesn't. Just remember this analogy, if anything else. So you've got to be able to sell value. Um, I loved Predictable Revenue by Aaron Ross. I just thought that motion, even though it's a little, so there's definitely some things that have changed in that. Um, five dysfunctions of a team is my go-to. Because you have, you, you literally, as, especially in revenue, but any part of the business, you're dealing with two sides, EQ and IQ. I can get you really good at what you do. And by the way, I'm like, I can hire because you're really good at what you do. But people succeed, teams win. I need a team. The only way to get a team is to build EQ. People have to be bought in. Go look at any sports team. Go look at any team. The, the, reason, the, the highest grossing movies, by the way, are the movies that are about some un, insurmountable task that a team overcame. That's what, those are the highest. Why do we love that story? Because a team figured out how to come together. They took, the, they took their name off the jerseys on the back, and they won as a team. How? So Five Dysfunctions, I think, is a must-read for anybody who's trying to figure out the EQ side of how to get a team to operate. Because, by the way, we're all going to die with a to-do list. Everyone will die with a to-do list. No one's going to speak at your funeral and say, gosh, he got so many emails out, it was incredible. I think he sent, Ryan Botts sent over 2 million emails in his lifetime. What a guy. No one's going to say that. They're going to talk about impact. That's EQ. The to-do list will always be there. But people get things done from EQ. So that's why I love five dysfunctions. I'm trying to think on, the, on, the, on my shelf at home. I can picture I've got like 40 books. Um, I like the jolt effect. I like anything Beck Holland. I love Beck Holland. I think she's brilliant. She, Beck Holland understands the psychology of humans in selling better than anybody. And I know this because I've spent time with her. I've hired her. And I was not a believer at first. I thought, oh, Beck, you're just saying stuff. And then I realized she's good. Yeah, good question. Okay, yeah. So uh, I, I, lo- I love the uh, sweater, by the way. I, I, I walked in a little bit late. Uh, Pelion was putting up some some numbers, some of their data that they compile, and they said something like 60, uh, Utah in 2020 20 and 2021 had more than $60 billion of exits. And, uh, and there was a Stanford study that came out that Pelion does a lot with, and and it says that Utah's number one in the United States for venture-backed startups becoming unicorns. Do you know, uh, you know, what, in your opinion, what's the secret sauce that Utah's using, or what, what are they doing to to uh, to to get those kind of numbers and punch so far above their weight for the size of, of state we are? Yeah, and by the way, that makes me think. I think we had a slide up here. Oh, yeah, okay. this is an extremely useful slide from Bessemer Ventures. This is like, you can go look up Laws of Cloud by Bessemer. This is mostly for software, but just change the numbers slightly, like plus or minus 10% in these categories for, for, um, uh, for, pro- for hard, like hard goods. Even services, you'd change these to a bit. But like, this is their metrics on stage by stage, where should you be? This is across a couple thousand companies that they track you know, for, for the last 15 years. Uh, when I look at these metrics... And I look at what Utah's done. First off, they're in this category. So if I look, so like Bessemer has a good, better, best, but we have we have companies that have figured out how to have high ARR growth, 
or high revenue growth in their first couple years, which means they got product market fit, which means they, their developers and their product people got really good at um, figuring out what the, what the demand was or the need for the product, right? So, so these product market fit surveys, um, Lean Startup will tell you to do 50 of them. Good companies did that. Utah is exceptional at getting product market fit, better than a lot of other places. So somewhere in our DNA, or maybe we just all started teaching each other through, through sessions like this, like get really good at finding problem solution, problem solution interviews, and getting product market fit before you go hit the market. Because those first two years matter to get high ARR growth. And if I look at, I look at what's happened um, all the way from, from Qualtrics to Weave, to plenty of others, like they they figured that out, and then you see what's interesting is you see this. Uh, so you see ARR growth start to slow, and you see gross margin take a dip in the twenty-five to fifty million range, but then it comes back up. That's because you you end up you end up doing more development. So you get to this twenty-five million spot. Like Qualtrics was a perfect example. They hit twenty-five million, and they're like, oh, I think we're more than just surveys. That's a pivot point. 25 million is a strong pivot point. That's why gross margin goes down because I've invested more and then it starts to take off and I hit 100. And you have another pivot point at 200 million. You're like, I need to reinvest and rethink. And Bessemer calls these acts one, two, and three. So like, what's your second act? What's your third act? I guess I'm answering your question by saying my personal belief, people here in Utah take this seriously. Like they know the craft. Startup is a craft. They figured out how to do really well with this craft. It's not just, you know, hey, I'm selling popsicles lemonade on the, on the you know, lemonade stand on the side of the road. They've really figured it out, and that that has created that's put that's for that's a pressure, um, s- sort of pressurized the system where people say, well, if they did it really well, what was their playbook? I want to do it better, and so you see companies that are launching that are literally they're literally scaling to two million, five million ARR in a couple months because they're doing it better than the last one. Is that that's what I think is happening? Uh, there's the whole EQ side too, which is we care about each other. We we want to work together. We want people to succeed. I think people are really good at the startup craft here. Ryan, that was awesome. Oh, you're awesome. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Great questions. Um, appreciate you being here, and I was learned a ton. So we'll uh, we'll see everybody next week. And uh, thanks for being here, Ryan. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everyone.